12th of January 1970. Three-year-old Cheryl Grimmer is at the beach with her three brothers and mum. As they prepare to leave, Cheryl can't be found. There will be a suspect charged nearly 50 years later. Will there be justice for little Cheryl? Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Islanders, I hope you're all well. Tonight's case is a particularly disturbing one. We go back to 1970 at a place called Fairy Meadow, just over an hour's drive south of Sydney. So, my sources tonight are The Guardian newspaper, ForgottenIllawarra.wordpress.com, The Illawarra Mercury newspaper, The Sydney Morning Herald newspaper, and 60 Minutes Australia again this week, which after listening to the case here, I suggest you look this one up on YouTube. Anyway, Fairy Meadow, it's a beachside suburb and in the 1970s, it hosted a migrant hostel just off from the beach. This was the Balgowney Migrant Workers Hostel. It consisted of maybe 100 or more Nissan and Quonset huts. Now, these are cheap and easy to erect, and although hot and humid in the summer, I heard, like little ovens, they were okay to help you get a leg up so that you could move on and build your own house. And by the way, there is one at Wollongong Uni Campus at the moment that is heritage listed, if you want to look that up on YouTube or wherever. So, for one young family that was staying at the Fairy Meadow or Balgowney Hostel, it was the Grimmer family. There was 20-year-old Vince, or sometimes known as John Grimmer, his 26-year-old wife Carol, and their four kids, 7-year-old Ricky, 5-year-old Stephen, 4-year-old Paul, and little 3-year-old Cheryl. The family had migrated from Bristol, England in 1969, and although the weather was a lot hotter than England, as we can imagine, the beach was just a short walk from the hostel. Vince was a corporal in the army and he worked at Penrith, which is quite a distance away. So he was only home on the weekends and Carol took care of the kids during the week. During January 1970 in Fairy Meadow, it was hot, very, very hot. And the Nissan huts were like little ovens. But hey, with a beach just a few minutes down the road, you could get out of the oppressive heat quite easily. So, on the 12th of January 1970, it was stinking hot. Carol decided to take the kids down to the beach to cool off and get them out of the house. So the family set off for the day, as they'd done a few times before with all the others that were suffering in the heat, down to Fairy Meadow Beach. Now, as you may have heard in the news and online, there are many dangers in Australia, dangers that will kill you from box jellyfish, sharks, snakes, 
crocodiles, spiders, drop bears and bunyips, let alone rips that will drag you out into the ocean. On this day, there would be a danger that no one knew was lurking nearby. So as the family enjoyed the day at the beach, playing in the sand and cooling off in the water, around 2pm, a southerly buster arrived. Now, a southerly buster is a big wind from the south that usually comes through in the afternoon. On a hot day, it can bring such a relief as the cold southerly winds cool things down. But if you're on a beach, you take cover because all the sand's being blown all over the place. So... On this day, as the southerly buster came in, everyone on the beach retreated up to the surf club. So Carol told the kids to get ready to go and she sent Ricky to take his brother and sister up to the wash shed amenities and toilet block to wash off all their sand. The four children walk up together and when they reach the amenities block, Cheryl wants to have a drink from the bubbler. As she's only three feet tall, Ricky has to lift her up to get a drink. Now, from what I can gather, they will all go into the men's washroom where they hose off the sand or they might have hosed it off outside the washroom. I'm not 100% sure there. But then Cheryl goes into the woman's area. When Ricky tells her to come out, she teases him to come and get her. Ricky and his brothers went to get their mum, who was still at the beach packing up, to go and get Cheryl out. You see, he was a boy and he knew he couldn't go into the ladies' washroom. He was gone for maybe 90 seconds. When Carol and the boys returned to the ladies' washroom area, they called out for Cheryl, but there was no answer. Carol started to panic and entered the washroom, but Cheryl was nowhere to be found. They looked around, checked the men's area, still no sign of Cheryl. You can imagine what was going on through Carol's mind at the time looking everywhere but failing to see where her little three-year-old daughter was. How could she have disappeared when she saw her only minutes before? Ricky and the boys had only left her for 90 seconds when they went to get their mum. Now she'd vanished into thin air. Soon panicked, Carol was calling out for Cheryl and enlisting the help of others in her frantic search for her baby. When it was apparent she was not in the immediate area, police were called in and the search widened. Still, as the afternoon went on, Cheryl was nowhere to be found. Vince Grimmer, who was at the army base in Penrith, was notified and he raced home to help look for his daughter. By now, the whole community was involved in the search and police were starting to interview witnesses. As night fell, I can't imagine how the Grimmer family felt. There's a photo I found online. I'm not sure the date of it, but it is of the family sitting down to dinner with an empty space where Cheryl would have sat. It must have been devastating, frustrating, and what thoughts must have been racing through John and Carol's minds, let alone the three brothers. From the videos and the newspaper articles, you can see the genuine grief and sadness from the parents. It's this genuine grief. It sort of reminded me of that little Keisha Whippet that went missing. When her parents were on TV pleading to get her back, you could tell straight off they were faking it and they were involved. Similar to other famous missing children cases, but hang on, I'm getting a bit off track here. 
So as the search continues, there would be over 1,000 people involved. Police get multiple leads of someone carrying a toddler from the area around the time Cheryl went missing, but they seemed to go nowhere. One strong lead led to a search of the Mount Oosley area not far from the beach, but it was called off when the man identified came forward to police to tell them that it was him and his daughter that had been described. So Cheryl went missing on the 12th of January, And on the 16th of January, police received a ransom note. The note demanded $10,000 to be given to an intermediary and he would release Cheryl unharmed. If he didn't get the money, he would abduct another child. He said Cheryl was in the care of two other people and was unharmed. Police did treat the ransom demand seriously, but believed it was probably a hoax. The mayor of Greater Wollongong, Alderman Ford, offered to pay the ransom and was ready to draw on the money at a moment's notice. Nothing would come of this demand and it was quickly dismissed as a hoax after no one fronted at the rendezvous point at Bulleye Library. I mean, you got to think some people are fucking assholes. On the 20th of January, police search a muddy, polluted creek that ran from the beach to form a swampy area. They drained it, but no remains were found. By this stage, police were in the process of questioning 150 known South Coast sex perverts as well. Police advised that they were looking for a 35 to 40 year old man of swarthy skin with a young face who drove a rusty, dirty cream 1960 Holden sedan with a black or dark blue front mudguards. Further information described this same man as 5 foot 2, slim build, Italian or Spanish. Now, I looked up the meaning of swarthy. It means of dark colour, complexion or caste. So I guess that's where they thought it might have been an Italian or Spanish immigrant. On the 23rd of February, the Premier's Department issued a reward notice and it read, from the Premier's Department, Sydney, 23rd of January, 1970. Missing child. Reward of $5,000. Between 2.30pm and 3pm on the 12th of January 1970, Cheryl Jean Grimmer, aged three years, was last seen near the public dressing sheds at Fairy Meadow Beach. She's not been seen or heard of since, her present whereabouts being unknown. The girl is described as three years of age, height three feet, slight build, blonde hair cut short and square at the back with a full fringe at the front. Fair complexion, blue eyes, and a protruding navel. When last seen, she was wearing a royal blue one-piece swimming costume with no sides and had a white towel in her possession. Notice is hereby given that a reward of $5,000 will be paid by the Government of New South Wales to any person who supplies such information as will lead to locating location of the missing child. The urgent assistance and cooperation of the public is specially sought in this matter and any information may be given at any time, day or night, to Police Communications Branch 20966 or triple zero. This reward will remain in force for a period of 12 months from the date of this notice and its allocation will be at the sole discretion of the Commissioner of Police. And that was signed R.W. Askin, the Premier. Now, this reward would be extended year on year. But anyway, so days turned into weeks with no sign of Cheryl. 
The organised search for her in the Fairy Meadow area was called off after three weeks, with police following up on leads not yet covered in the early stages of the investigation. At this stage, police feared Cheryl was dead. So police continued following up on leads and interviewing not only witnesses on the day, but also the sex perverts and others. All these pieces of information were filed away, and of course nowadays it would all be compiled on a computer system which would allow for easy cross-referencing and data analysis. But this is 1970, and amongst all that data would be something so crucial that nearly 50 years later it would make a breakthrough in this case. And yes, this case went cold. Cheryl would not be found in the days, weeks or years from when she went missing. It was as if she just vanished into thin air. Now, as I said before, I watched the 60 Minutes episode with the three boys now grown up and they spoke of how Cheryl had gone missing and how it had devastated the family. Vince Grimmer, their father, they said he was a good man, but he just couldn't get over Cheryl going missing and took to the drink. He did blame Ricky, the oldest, for leaving her at the washrooms when he had sometimes a little bit too much to drink. As you can imagine, this really affected the boys. It was just a fucked up situation all round. The family relocated to England for about 10 years just to get away from it all. Now, I don't know when they left, but it must have been hard being known as the family that lost their little girl. Now, as there was no body, it was possible, however unlikely, that Cheryl was still alive and may not know who she actually was. In later years, this led to an appeal to people to come forward and get DNA tested to see if they may be Cheryl. Now, Cheryl had a big outie belly button that protruded about a centimetre. One woman did come forward, but she was not a DNA match. Vince Grimmer, he passed away in 2004, aged about 57, without knowing what had happened to his beloved daughter. In 2011, there was a coronial inquiry that came to the conclusion that Cheryl had died shortly after going missing. Her manner of death was undetermined and the police should reopen the investigation. A $1,000 reward was offered for information regarding Cheryl's disappearance. Now Carol, the mum, refused to believe Cheryl was dead, but sadly she passed away in 2014, aged 69. Now Wollongong detectives and the Homicide Squad's unsolved homicide team created a task force called Strike Force Wessel. Now, with these sorts of cases, there'd been yearly newspaper articles published in the hope that someone would finally come forward or remember something from that day and might shed more light on the case. But no, decades would go by, but then a detective, Frank Sanvitali, would be assigned to look into the cold case in 2016. He went about re-interviewing witnesses from the boxes of files on hand. As you can imagine, 45 years after the event, some of the witnesses were dead and others would have distorted memories from the length of time since that day in January 1970. However, he persevered. Then he came upon a file which would be a 
bombshell and open up the case in an amazing manner. The file he came across contained a statement from a 16-year-old boy in which he confessed to abducting Cheryl, killing her and then hiding her body. This statement was taken on the 29th of April 1971 after he was suspected of being involved in Cheryl's disappearance. At the time, the boy had escaped from a juvenile detention home. This must have been a what-the-fuckity-fuck moment for Detective Sandavali. He must have had to read and re-read the statement multiple times and pinch himself in case he was dreaming. Now, I don't have the full confession, but from news articles, here are the main points. The 16-year-old boy said that he watched Cheryl being lifted up by her brother to get a drink from the bubbler and the amenities blocks. He then saw her three brothers disappear. Now, this could only have been known by someone who was there, and this is corroborated by the three brothers who said they'd help to get a drink. He then goes on. The little girl walked west between the pavilion and the boat shed, and he grabbed her, put one hand over her mouth to stop her from screaming, and carried her away towards the main road and hid in a drain for about 35 minutes. He then tied a handkerchief and a shoelace around her mouth and used a black shoelace to tie her hands behind her back. He said he was intending to have sexual intercourse with her. He then took her a short distance to a bushland area. She started to scream as soon as he took the gag off her and he put his hands around her throat and told her to shut up. She stopped crying and stopped breathing. He said he panicked placed bushes and dirt on her body. He took off all her clothing and in a panic he ran off. The only items he left there were shoelaces. He took her cozies or swimming costumes and towel. He then made his way back to Fairy Meadow Beach. He dumped the towel at an Ampol service station and he burned her swimming cozies in an incinerator at a beach camping ground towards Coromel. He told police that he left her body on a property with a tubular gate and a cattle grid near the corner of Brokers and Balgowney Road. Now, whether or not Brokers and Balgowney Road were there at the time, or they might have just been old tracks, but the area was just rural and bush. Police would go to this area, which in January 1970, as I said, farmland, but it was getting ready to get subdivided. By the time they investigated the area with the young boy, it was already being developed and the boy was now unsure of the exact location of the body. Police interviewed the owner of the property at the time and he told police there'd never been a cattle grid or tubular steel gate on the property. With this, police decided that there was not enough substantial evidence to arrest the boy and it didn't warrant further investigation. Wow. So this file, it just went back in the cabinet. Now when Detective Frank Sanvitali investigated this confession in 2016, he found, after investigation, that all of the confession was true and it could be corroborated. Now that bit about the property owner denying that there was a cattle grid and tubular steel gate at the location that the 16-year-old boy said was near near where he left Cheryl's body, well, Frank asked the former owner's sons about it. 
and they confirmed to him that indeed there had been a cattle grid and a tubular steel gate there at the time of Cheryl's disappearance in 1970. Now, had the original owner just not wanted to become involved? Did he in fact discover the body and disposed of it so as not to interfere with the current redevelopment of the site? This is strange for him to deny there was a gate and grid there for his children 45 years later confirming they did exist. Well, it's too late now for a search of a body as the whole area is now a fully developed residential area. Another thing, it seems Cheryl's remains were not really buried that well according to the confession. You would think any workers clearing the area would easily stumble across her remains. This is why I think someone moved them after the 16-year-old boy dumped them. I mean, well, allegedly dumped them, let's not get that wrong. I mean, if you had some financial interest in a development of the area and you found Cheryl's body there, work might be stopped for any length of time and potential investors might stay away. It would be in your interest to dispose of her body and never say a word. Now, this is just my theory, so I'm not stating it as fact, but it seems Really strange, this bit. Anyway, Detective Frank Sanvitali, who by this time had interviewed hundreds of witnesses and suspects, he zeroed in on this once 16-year-old boy and now 61-year-old man living in Melbourne. Frank flew to Melbourne and left a message on the suspect's phone asking him to call him back. And guess what? Call back he did. Now, this is part of the conversation that they aired on 60 Minutes. So the suspect rings up and goes, what do you need to speak to me about? Frank says, you tell me. The suspect says, is it something I did when I was very young, which I regret every day of my life? Is it about a young girl at Fairy Beach? Frank says, it could be. So they got the suspect in to interview him and showed him the confession he'd made 45 years before. They put the confession in front of him and he signed each of the pages until he got to the part where it read, What happened to Cheryl? He told Frank, Mate, I wasn't there. Well, they did arrest the 60-year-old man, extradited him to New South Wales and he would be held for two years on remand awaiting trial. The three brothers are happy as they now might get some justice for their sister who was taken from them 46 years or so before. Detective Frank Sanvitali had reinvestigated every little detail of the case and had come up with a prime suspect and now he was pursuing murder charges. So Islanders, a cold case finally sold after nearly five decades, a suspect who had had signed a confession, was going to be tried for murder, will get the rage ready. The 60-year-old accused man was now pleading not guilty. At a pre-trial hearing, the unnamed accused, well, at least his lawyers, argued that the confession was taken by police without any parent, guardian or lawyer present and that he had not been cautioned that he was now a suspect and not just a witness. The confession was deemed inadmissible and the charges were dropped. Now, I just want to read this little bit 
from Shannon Tonkin. Hi, Sharon, from the Illawarra Mercury, dated the 25th of May, 2017. And this is just part of this uh, news article. Legal aid lawyer Laura Fennell said it would be argued at trial that her client was significantly mentally unwell at the time he made the alleged confession and that anything he said at the time was inadmissible in what was already a troublingly weak case. The prosecution case relies on the confession and that will be contested, she said. Great lawyering, Laura Fennell, great job. Okay, so in 1971, there was no requirement for a minor to have a parent, guardian or lawyer present when the police interviewed them. So they were actually following procedure. Now, whether or not they cautioned him when he went from witness to suspect, well, I don't know. The judiciary decided to apply the current law where a parent, guardian or lawyer needs to be present during a police interview of a minor, they decided to apply the current law retrospectively. It's just disgusting. Now, there wasn't enough other evidence to proceed with trial. Charges were dropped and the suspect went home. This devastated the remaining family and was the main reason why Detective Frank Sanvitali retired from his job. After all these years, to find out that there was a confession on file, forgotten about in a box, for decade after decade, for the family not knowing what had happened to their beloved daughter and sister, to finally have a major breakthrough in the case, not only was there a signed confession, but Frank spoke to this suspect on the phone and he spoke about the little girl from Fairy Beach, or Fairy Meadow Beach, and doing something that he'd regretted. To be on the brink of finally bringing some justice for the remaining family because Vince and Carol Grimmer, they're both dead, to get so close to justice only to watch this alleged murder and pedo walk free? It's fucking disgusting. And the judiciary have dropped the ball on this one. As a society, yes, we have rules and laws. But who other than some legal technocrat would want a situation where this alleged murderer with such a strong case against him would be able to walk free. Yes, like I said, society wants rules and laws, but we also don't want situations like this to happen. A technicality will let this scum walk free. Oh, I only hope that they once again charge this guy and this time use all the available evidence against him. In fact, If you are listening unnamed suspect because you were fucking charged when you're a minor so they can't give out your name, why don't you do the right thing for for this family, come back to New South Wales, submit a new confession and plead guilty to murder. Do something right in your life. You still have this last chance. Our thoughts go out to the family of Cheryl Grimmer and I hope the Karma bus is going to visit Melbourne. I just had a break then (laughs) and have a drink of water. Well, that's it for another case. Now, before we get to the shout-outs, keep October 19 aside. If you'll be in Melbourne, I'm going to visit my lovely mates Barney and Tara from Bloody Murder and we're going to record a True Crime Island third birthday episode together in the case. It's one that was sent to me by Craig Frost. I won't say what it is, 
but it will be very interesting. Now, I'll be flying in early and after recording. I think we may all end up somewhere in Brunswick having a few beers. If you're a listener and want to join us, then we'll have more details soon. But if you are a podcaster and want to meet some of your listeners as well, let Tara or myself know so we can include you on the promos. I think True Blue Climb's coming. Don't forget, I've got a YouTube channel now. If you just search for True Crime Island and subscribe there we're going to get more and more content up as the time goes on please subscribe to the channel share with your friends once i do get a few more subs i might do a few special video segments we'll see what happens so now to the patreon shout outs a big shout out to mato thanks mate very much and to keith keith zongs i'll get that out thanks so much boom fuckalunga guys Thank you all so much for your support and thanks so much to all present and past Patreon supporters of the island. It really does make a difference and as you know, True Crime Island is a totally listener-supported podcast. Thank you very much. I keep it ad-free. As you know, I don't like ads. Neither do you. If you want to support the island financially for as little as a dollar a month, you too can become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash Island and check out the levels and reward. If, oh, Tyler did hear about this last week. I sent his mug off this week as part of his reward. Now, you don't have to join Patreon to become a financial member. You can do a one-off donation of paypal.me forward slash Drew Grime Island. Also, you can support the island by getting hold of some merch, such as T-shirts, hoodies, beach towels, and fantastic tote bags. My favourite is the Mug of Rage, all available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Now... If you do have any issues whatsoever with their products, please let them, let me know and let them know. They will replace anything. They'll get it right. And they'll keep sending it out till they get it right. So I don't want anyone having something not quite right and not let anybody know because it will be sent to you perfectly. Remember, listeners, don't order the black mugs until further notice. I do have keychains, lapel pins, stickers, which you need to contact me directly for. This can be done by emailing me, cambo, at truecrimeisland.com. And that's also the best way to get contact me personally for anything else such as case requests, just to say, boom, fuckalunga, or send me a picture of your cat. Now, you don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate and review and tell your friends, family, and workmates about the island And if they don't know how to tune in, show them. Podcasts. There's so many podcasts out there. If you don't like True Crime Island, you might like something else. So uh, search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And, of course, YouTube now. Join the closed group on Facebook. Now, this week, we have a promo for Ghost Town Podcast, which is hosted and produced by Jason Horton and Rebecca Leap. It's a comedy podcast about mysterious, abandoned, and esoteric places all over the world. Each week, Rebecca and Jason explore new unsolved mysteries, abandoned places, haunted houses, and the paranormal. If you love true crime, ghost stories, urban archaeology, and the unexplained, or just want to see the world around you a little differently, Ghost Town has something for you. So listen to the promo, I'll tack it on the end of the show. So, shout out to Curtis in Melbourne, boom fuckalunga mate, you, I might see you in a few weeks time, so that's about it for the show tonight, lots of love to Maggie James and I'm your host Cambo, you've been listening to True Crime Island, and as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history, Good night. boom fuckalunga.
I'm Rebecca Lieb. And I'm Jason Horton. And we're the hosts of Ghost Town, a comedy podcast about all places abandoned, tragic, mysterious, haunted, and true crimey. That's not a word. <laughs> we cover all kinds of locations like... The Los Feliz Murder House. An L.A. murder frozen in time. Action Park. The world's most dangerous amusement park. JonBenet Ramsey's house, Woodstock 99, the Cecil Hotel, and the Black House. Ooh, Satan. Mm. So pause the podcast you're currently listening to immediately and go subscribe to Ghost Town. You can find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.